The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in August 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio in the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. Normally at this moment, Howard Sherman, the Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, would introduce himself. In the three and a half years we've been doing Downstage Center, this is the first time that Howard has been unavailable for a program. He will return next week. Our guest today, Anthony Rapp. Hi, Anthony. Hello. I'd like to just uh, quickly run through a few of your credits. You have just recently returned to Rent, the musical in which you starred back, oh, I guess 13 years ago when it first started in a workshop. Yes. And now back once again as Mark Cohen in Rent, in between shows like You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, the revival in 1999, Six Degrees of Separation, Precious Sons, a show that never officially opened on Broadway. We'll talk about that, The Little Prince and the Aviator. You've done a number of films, A Beautiful Mind, Days and Confused. Of course, in 1987, the film that many people remember to this day, Adventures in Babysitting, playing Daryl Coopersmith. You have your own book out, a, a memoir, so to speak, at a young age to have a memoir, uh, called Without You, a memoir of love, loss, and the musical Rent. Let's start with Rent. You're back in Rent now. You had been in the original production, the workshop, then the off-Broadway version, then Broadway, Chicago, London, the film version, and now here you are back in Rent. Why? Um, (laughs) In the spring, I was working on a a really exciting new musical that hopefully will see the light of day in a full production at some point. Um, Believe me, there are plenty of those around. It just takes a long time for them to come to light. And I got an email from the producer of Rent, Jeffrey Seller, who said, what would you think about going back in the show for a few weeks with Adam Pascal, who was the original Roger? And I was like, really? And it just, it had never really occurred to me that that would come up. And the first thing I did was call Adam. I was like, is this, is this true? (laughs) Because I didn't know if they were just like a little ploy or, you know, Mm -hmm. using us to help each other convince each other or what, but he was, he was certainly interested. He was coming to New York anyway to work on a record and he was looking to do something while he was here. He's been eager to get back on stage in New York as I have been. And, um, it just was a perfect window of time. Um, I, I was about to go to South Africa where I just returned um, from where I directed the South African premiere of Rent. So I knew that that was happening in my immediate future. And in the fall, I tend to go to a lot of, uh, I get invited to go to a lot of colleges and do speaking about Rent and about my book. And so there was some of that lined up in the fall. But in the meantime, you know, August is sort of a great month in terms of a window. And it just worked out perfectly. And, uh, it was it was just an exciting opportunity. I mean, I knew from having done the film, which was many years after having done the show, that the material still was incredibly fulfilling to perform. And then we did a 10th anniversary concert in, in 2006 at the Nederlander. And being back on stage after having done the film was even more exciting. So I, I didn't have any doubt of whether or not it would be uh, fulfilling or exciting or fun or or important to me as an artist I just I was a little concerned about my body because I'm a little (laughs) older and there's a lot of jumping and running around and all that stuff and and I felt a couple little aches and pains but but I've been holding up pretty well well here you are it is a decade later and uh, you're back on stage in the same role how does it feel then to be back in the same dressing room the same theater the same role the same stage all that feels like home and the audiences have been unbelievably welcoming I mean you know i I don't know if this is if if other actors have talked to you about this notion, but when you walk out on stage, you're either walking into a room that's, you know, 
maybe a little hostile sometimes or skeptical or warm and open. You know, there's a variety of what you're walking into. And sometimes you can win an audience over if they're hostile or skeptical and sometimes, but, but when they're already there for you, then it's literally, you can do no wrong. And that gives that much more, um, energy back and, and freedom to just, to, to just fly with it. And from the first performance on July 30th, uh, we walked out on stage. First, Adam walks out alone to, to like huge deafening screams. Then I walked out with the rest of the cast, and the, and the, we got a standing ovation for like two minutes, solid. Mm-hmm. And I I start the show by saying we begin on Christmas Eve, and I had to literally just stand there and wait. I mean, I'm not going to like try to quiet them down because they weren't about to quiet down. <laughs> not, and that's not really the style of the show anyway. But it was the, it was amazing. And then it was just like that was sort of the way it's been for the last two weeks since we've been back on stage it's just you know we don't always get a standing ovation but but the but the the response and the sort of love and support coming back at us is really amazing and i think that's been great for the for the rest of the cast to feel too because they didn't we got something like that back in 1996 97 on a regular basis but i think the cast that's been in the show some of them have been there for a while but i don't think they've ever experienced anything quite like that with this show and it's it's a nice gift for them as well, I think. I imagine you have a lot of rent groupies who return to see the show. I think we have some people that have returned, and some of them have managed to say hello afterwards, although the 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 outside the theater stage door scene is so much more frenzied and intense than it ever was even back then. And back then, we always had people waiting for us after the show, and we would sign autographs and take pictures and stuff, but now... It's just exponential, and it's not just exponential in number. It's also in the kind of intensity of their energy, and it's it's a little bit like I mean, it almost is like a cliche, but people have been saying this who've witnessed it. My friends who've been by the theater after the show, they've been like, it's like the Beatles. Mm-hmm. It's that kind. I mean, there's not as many people, but it's like the footage you see of them when they landed in whatever I don't know if it was LaGuardia or Kennedy, and they got off that plane, and there was that crowd of people there clamoring for them. I mean, it's like that. Which is kind of amazing. It's also a little crazy. It's a little strange. I mean, I you know I grew up a, in a in Joliet, Illinois, this small town, and I was sort of a dork growing up, and I didn't really imagine that I'd be kind of clamored at by teenage girls, <laughs> you know. But uh, you know, but it's also incredibly flattering, and 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 I'm certainly grateful for it. Well, Rent the Musical has become uh, iconic, so to speak. It's been running for more than 11 years, which is an extremely long run by anybody's standards on Broadway. And the show, in large uh, measure due to the the message that it has, has become one of those um, iconic or classic uh, shows on Broadway now. Even though the music may not be classic in the Rodgers and Hammerstein sense, the storyline certainly is. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's... And and I I think the music, it, it is rock and roll and pop influence, certainly, but... What it shares with Rodgers and Hammerstein or Jules Stein or Irving Berlin or any of the classic Cole Porter, any of them, is is melody, uh, uh, this notion of, uh, of a hook, of a catchy melody that can really stick in your brain and is the window into which people walk through the story. And I think that that's something that Jonathan understood, that it it can't simply be... It can't simply be in your face rock and roll. It's also got to have something accessible to it. And, you know, when we're on stage singing about some of the things we're singing about, but it's with this really fun, catchy melody that lets the message go even deeper in some ways than it ordinarily would. 
But Rodgers and Hammerstein, especially Hammerstein who wrote the lyrics, were optimists. And the uh, music that Hammerstein wrote, the words he wrote, were optimistic words. Like, mm-hmm. you take South Pacific at the end of World War II, that was very optimistic in its outlook. Here you have Jonathan Larson writing Rent. It's a totally different story. It's about AIDS and people with, with other problems. But there's an optimism about that as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and it's a, I guess it's a, to me it's always been a clear-eyed optimism. I mean, it's not like a pie-in-the-sky optimism. Mm-hmm. It's, it's taking a hard look at the difficulties that people face in this day and age and saying in the face of those it's still possible to live fully uh you know this phrase living with not dying from disease you know that's at the time the show was written in 1996 that was still kind of a revolutionary notion it's much more commonly thought now you know if you're living with cancer you're living with aids you're living with ms but back then even it wasn't that long ago that it was still sort of you're dying from it Mm -hmm. And that alone is part of that. But so you're it's it's the the key word there is with, you know, it's including this the reality of the situation and it's saying living with that. Um, and, and part of the thing, too, is, of rent is it, it's in the finale. There's the two phrases that that coexist. I die without you, which is you could say a negative thought or a, or a sad thought and no day but today that these two things Again, they coexist. That it's, it, it, they don't cancel each other out. They're part. It's all part of life. And again, it's that optimism, not uh, dying of, but living with disease, whatever disease it is. Right. The, that becoming the, the the mindset. Yes. Yeah. And of course, the story of Jonathan Larson creating the show and then literally dying himself, not of a disease, but of an aneurysm, mm-hmm. a, a heart aneurysm, on the eve of the the first uh, public performance off Broadway. Uh, that in itself. It uh, sounds like uh, something out of Hollywood, out of a movie. But I think that has given the show a certain aura that it probably would have had, but not to the same extent. Yeah, it's, a, it's, been, it's always been a question, not a question that, that we've asked, but sometimes some critics over the years have sort of contemplated what might have happened to the show had Jonathan not died. I mean, one thing I know is that the show would have been even better because Jonathan was still working on the text. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the last song he wrote for the show was Take Me or Leave Me, which to me is one of the best songs in the show. And so he was at the peak of his powers. And he was eager for the preview process to begin and for him to continue tinkering with it. I know that. I mean, there might be two or three new songs in the show. Who knows? So that's one thing I know. The other thing is I know that it, it we we as a cast were already very connected to one another and to the material. But then when he died, it just made it that much more important to all of us to do right by it and to make it live. And so I think that just it just deepened our commitment to to one another and to the piece. So that helped its uh, impact, I think. And then, yeah, so I think initially there was some, a little more resonance for some people, but, but at the same time, you know, when an 11 year old girl today listens to the songs and falls and sees the movie and falls in love with it, maybe she'll find out later that Jonathan died and that might add some resonance, but she's not falling in love with it because Jonathan died. And when the movie came out and even when we moved to London in 1998, there were critic. There have been critics who have said the only reason it ever was a success was that Jonathan died, which is, to me, just patently, uh, it's rude. First of all, to to his family and to his memory, and it's just an insupportable argument. Because again, there is no way that a twelve a, a year old girl is in love with these characters and singing these songs because Jonathan died. It's just an absurd notion to me. But I mean, yes, it it has added a certain resonance to it. But I always thought, you know, if if Jonathan, well, Jonathan did die, and if, if if critics had come to see the show in 1996, 
knowing that he died, which everyone knew, and they hadn't liked it, they would have just, it would have been more like, oh, it's a shame he showed promise. You know, it, 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 it's too bad we won't hear more from him. They wouldn't have celebrated the peace as the, as, you know, as a peace. You know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. it, it, it's just, uh, it's just a strange thing. You know, there, I know that there are some people out there as evidenced from some of the, you know, we got incredibly split reviews from the movie and so many of them, the negative ones were, seemed to be a kind of a backlash against the success that the show has had for a decade. They'd been almost like waiting to weigh in on the fact that they thought the show never should have been a success in the first place. And the only reason it was a success was Jonathan died, et cetera, et cetera. So there's something about the piece that can also really turn people off and rub them the wrong way. I've always thought in some part of myself that there's that the show challenges people's cynicism on a certain level. And it, and it begs big questions of people. It asks people to look at their own lives and, and see how they're spending their life. Like that's a question that, that Jonathan asks repeatedly in the show questions about how do you spend your life? What is your life for? What, what, what are you here for? How do you measure your life? And I think that that alone is something that sometimes people will go, Ooh, I don't really want to look at, I'm not going to the theater to think about that. Or I don't want, you know, I'll go to my therapist to think about that, or I don't know what, but, but the, I don't know if that's the only reason or if it's the music, if it's the fact that, that these characters are struggling in certain ways that they don't think is an appropriate struggle, they should just get jobs in, a, in an office. I mean, we've heard those kinds of arguments that those things alone turn people off to, from being able to really hear what I, to me are very profound messages and questions and ideas about what it means to be alive. Well, who, who was Jonathan Lawson? What, what was he like? I mean, you knew the guy personally. What, what was he like as a person and as a as a as a songwriter? Jonathan was, um, in my experience, I mean, I knew him for a little over a year. Um, he was unusually open to to me to his to his actors. A lot of times, writers sort of hang out in the in the corner. And there have been like a couple writers that I've worked with over the years that were a little more friendly, a little more interested in hanging out with the actors. Some they usually had been actors themselves, like Nikki Silver had acted when he was younger, and Jonathan had acted when he was younger. My brother had acted a little bit, so um, so that was a little unusual. And then he he was to me very clearly uh, incredibly ambitious, but not in any sort of. Um, you know, clawing and 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 scraping and shoving people out of the way kind of manner. He was just ambitious. Like he believed in himself, and he worked really, really hard. And you know, I didn't know him when he was struggling. I knew him when he was on the cusp of his success. But it's it remains incredibly uh, amazing to me and inspiring to me that as he went as long as he did without any real success and still wrote with the kind of heart and vision that he did. I mean, a lot of people would have gotten so burnt out by that point and given up and, and or written things that were just more and more embittered or, you know, I don't know what, you know, that they, they would have, their worldview would have gotten smaller. His just seemed to keep expanding. And that's amazing to me. He, um, he said something to Michael Greif, our director, about thinking that Rent could... He wanted Rent to have a similar kind of impact as Angels in America had had. And Michael was like, wow, well, I you know, that's a big thing to think. Mm-hmm. And Michael, you know, understandably was a little like, I'm not sure. You know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> but um, but Jonathan was kind of right. In fact, in some ways, it's had more of an impact than Angels just because by virtue of the fact that it's a musical, people tend to, you know, be that much more open to the to musicals, the songs stay in their heads, et cetera, et cetera. It's been done more years than Angels in America. Angels in America, to me, was also one of the most profound experiences I've ever had going to the theater. But um, 
so that's the kind that's what he was thinking of he was not simply thinking of creating something that would be entertaining that would i mean not that there's anything wrong with that but to me that that the ultimate goal of art can be that that it can also change people's lives or change the way people look at the world or have political impact i mean everything is political anyway but um jonathan was certainly in in after that he was going after something that was going to reach something a little deeper than simply going to the theater and, and humming a few good tunes. Now, while you were in the creative process for the show, the workshop, the off-Broadway, what were you thinking? You were telling people this show could be a big splash. Did you ever think it was going to become really as big as it has? No, I mean, I've, I, you know, you have to remember in 1995-96, there really wasn't anything like it in, in the mainstream mm-hmm. at all. I mean, around the time that we debuted on Broadway, Ellen... DeGeneres had just come out on national television, and that was a big deal. I mean, that was, you know, a a major big deal. And Philadelphia had, I guess, it was around the same time as Philadelphia, the film with Tom Hanks. Mm -hmm. But there still had been precious little in any sort of mainstream culture that dealt with AIDS as directly as Rent did, that dealt with gay gay and lesbian couples as directly as Rent did, that um, even dealt with homelessness as directly as Rent did. So those factors made me think it was still going to probably be a little bit, you know, off on the fringes a little bit. Also kind of a heavy theme. Yeah. And and yet, looking back on it, it seems that it filled a void. And when, you know, it's, it's almost like a, a physics thing. When, when a void, when there's a void that's there, and if it starts to get filled, the energy around that is tremendous. It's just like you, all you have to do, like a dam breaking, you have to make one little crack and the water just rushes through. So that's part of what happened, I think, to help us become such a, a success was that it, the, the, without realizing it, people going to Broadway shows were starved for this kind of experience that had this kind of an impact and and that told these kinds of stories. And so that created even more of a chemical reaction around it. Hmm. Now, your character, Mark Cohen, is, I gather, somewhat based on Jonathan Larson. In other words, if there's a character in the show that is most like him, that, that would be the character? Is that I fair think to say? so in some ways. I mean, you know, I think that there's certainly Jonathan in every one of the characters. I mm-hmm. mean, I think like Roger, Jonathan was aspiring to do something really important before he was gone. For whatever reason, he always had this sort of fatalistic notion that he might not be around for very long, which is kind of strange because mm-hmm. he was relatively healthy as far as anyone knew and and he didn't know that he had an ailment no not at all i mean mm-hmm. it was it was a total mystery um i mean he was very tuned in with his friends who were hiv positive some of whom had died you know so he was very aware of like young mortality but so in that sense i think he's linked to roger but i think what links him with mark is that he was bearing witness to these things that were happening around him and like mark was trying to find the best way to do that and and pumping up against his own struggles to connect to himself and, and what it was doing to him. Um, so I think that, and, and, and like Mark uh, had had a girlfriend who left him for a woman, you know, there were those kinds of details. The details of the apartment are very much like Jonathan's apartment. I mean, they had this big electric electric cord that, the, you know, this extension cord that, that into which they plugged all their electronics and it went out the window because they had to like pirate their electricity. And, <laughs> you know, the, it's not, there's not a detail that's in the show, but I mean, they lived in a, you know, a, a walk up that you had to throw, this is in the show that you had to throw down the key from the window. You know, there was no buzzer, mm. things like that. The thing that's not in the show is that Jonathan had a bathtub in his kitchen. But, um, um, so I think that all those, all those factors, you know, struggling to just make ends meet while pursuing art certainly something that was very central to Jonathan. 
What what has um, rent meant to you in your life since you've became involved with it in 1994? It's it's hard to put into the most succinct words, but there's something so deeply validating about the fact that it became a success because it validates everything that I believe that I hold to be true or mm-hmm. or hold to be the ideals of what I hold to be true, which is that if you bring together a group of people who are dedicated to telling the truth and to creating something beautiful and pouring their hearts and souls into it and doing their best work, that that can be rewarded and not only rewarded, but that can also make a difference in the world. And I've long believed that to be true. And it's so rare as an artist that we get to, that all those things come together into one experience. And the fact that they did come together with rent and that, that, and that it's continued to have this life over so much of my life is, uh, it just again it just validates everything that i like my my most core beliefs and believe me in this in this day and age with everything that's going on in the world and you know it's it's sort of rough out there these days i mean that's that's a great great comfort to me personally and i think and i know that it's been a that rent has been a great great comfort to many people over the years well, Rent is a musical with uh, music and lyrics by Jonathan Larson, and you get to sing more than one song in the yeah, show. I get to sing, like, I don't know, like 20 or 30 songs. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very music-intensive show, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Let's play one of the songs. Why don't you uh, pick a song and, and set up how it works in the show? Well, this song, it's it's really my only sort of major solo moment in the show. Uh, as as Mark, I'm the narrator of the piece. And, um, and interestingly, in the 1994 workshop, this song didn't exist. Um, and Jonathan decided that he wanted to make Mark more of a narrator as he was revising the show. And he contemplated making this song the opening number of the show and have the rest of the show be in a flashback. Mm. So and I never saw the draft in which that existed because they changed it by the time we started rehearsal. But I always thought that was kind of interesting. But I do think it's better the where it comes because you've gotten to know everything. I think it, I think it has a little more resonance in the context where it appears now. But... Um, you know, for not to spoil it for people who've seen the show, but there is a funeral in the middle of Act Two, and this song uh, is sort of Mark's soliloquy after the funeral. It's called Halloween. We're chatting today with Anthony Rapp, who has returned to the cast of Rent after a hiatus of uh, the better part of a decade. Now back on stage at the Nederlander Theater through uh, middle of September, September ninth, is it? Yeah, that's the day right now. Yeah, yeah, back in uh, back in Rent. And Anthony, let's get talking about you yourself and where it all started. In Joliet, Illinois, is where you were born. And age six, you made your first public appearance on a stage. I was a camper at a, a little summer camp in northeastern Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. My mom was a nurse, and uh-huh. my brother, sister, and I just went along with her for the summer, like most children of nurses at camps do. And I don't remember why or how or what, because I was, you know, it was a long time ago. But um, I auditioned for their musical, which was The Wizard of Oz, mm. and I was cast as the Cowardly Lion. And uh, it was a great experience. I loved it. I had really good feedback. I mean, I was. Looking back, and I'm, you know, it's much easier to put everything in context. You know, looking back, I was so fortunate that I had as much support as I had so early because I think those formative experiences. If I had had people going, "Oh no, you know," or "That wasn't very good," or mm-hmm. "I don't want you to do that," or whatever, then I might not have pursued it. But went back the next summer, did two more shows. I was the Artful Dodger and Oliver and um, Snoopy and Your Good Man Charlie Brown. And then that that fall, after my second summer, I w- it was right around my eighth birthday. Um, I was reading the Joliet Herald News, our local paper, and I found an advertisement for an audition for a local theater company's musical version of A Christmas Carol called Mr. Scrooge, and I called and scheduled myself an audition. 
You so, called at age eight. You yes, picked up the phone. I picked up the phone. And wasn't called. your mother? No, it was me. I did it. <laughs> did, did your mother know you did? This? She. I told her about it and then, afterwards. Yeah, and then <laughs> and then I got the audition and then I went and I got the part and you know so she was just very proud and happy and and all that stuff. I mean, you know, she was a single mother of three as a nurse. Really, you know, it was it was a hard hard life for her, and she did she, everything she could to help me on my way and and then I was just very fortunate that I had a bunch of directors that I worked with that were, that were nothing but encouraging and taught me a lot as a kid and uh-huh. and I, you know I was a little precocious so I was able to hang with adults and you know talk to them as as a person as as much as a child can and um we got encouragement to take me to Chicago to start try to work professionally and um got agents right away it's much easier to get an agent when you're a kid because there aren't <laughs> as many kids uh-huh. You know, it's not, you know the field is so much smaller. Uh-huh. And then um, I started doing some shows in Chicago. I did Evita in Chicago. That's how I got my equity card. And and how old were you then? I was nine. All of nine. Mm-hmm. Wow. I sang. I'm pretty sure for that one, I sang "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star" for my for my audition. <laughs> and um, and I re- I was actually a replacement. There, there was the you know, there's the four kids in Evita and the children's chorus. Mm-hmm. And I did it in Chicago for a few months, and then um, and then the, came the the show that you mentioned briefly the uh ill-fated little prince and the aviator um i was originally cast as the fox in that and the understudy of the little prince because i was they were concerned i was a little too young i was just around 10 at that time and um but it didn't work out with the little princess so they they upgraded me to the little prince they and they made the little prince my understudy which i'm sure was very hard for him i can only imagine and then uh but and michael york was the aviator he was really lovely to me it was a, it was a wonderful experience as a for a ten year old. I mean, I had a great time. I looking, would think so. Looking yeah. back, I'm I'm sure it wasn't a very good show, but um, we previewed for two weeks and never opened. So you actually got to be on a Broadway stage. Yeah, it was on the Broadway stage for two weeks and then we never opened. <laughs> and th- so that was my first taste of of you know the 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 darker side of showbiz. <laughs> and then, but right after that, I did the King and I for a year with Yul Brenner on tour, um, and then started doing some summer stock and sort of kicked around a little bit and then my f- next sort of big break if you could call it that was uh i did the play precious sons in 1986 which didn't run for very long on broadway but norman renee directed it who has since sadly passed away but he wound up directing also prelude to a kiss and longtime companion the film that came out in the early 90s or late 80s um and ed harris and judith ivy were playing my parents in that and it was a really it was it was you know all these years i had been acting but it was the first time i really felt like i was learning about sort of the deeper aspects of what acting was and um, sort of started to feel like an artist, I guess you could say. And uh, had, you know, just was blessed by the amazing mentorship of Ed Harris and Judith Ivey and Norman Renee. And and even though it was a short-lived experience, it was still an incredibly enriching experience. Now, as, as a young person, could you appreciate the, the fine actors that Ed Harris and Judith yes. Ivey are? Yes. Even yes. then? Yes, yes, yes. And that was also, like, it was around that time, it was a quite exciting year in New York. House of Blue Leaves, the production with um, Susie Kurtz and John Mahoney and mm-hmm. Stalker Channing, mm-hmm. that was one of those uh, seminal experiences for me of being in the theater. And I'm sure I didn't get everything in the play, but, you know, I was pretty smart for a 14-year-old, and it was just, I was in the presence of of capital a art d- acted gorgeously by those actors and so i was i was feeling like i was becoming a part of that um and also lily tomlin and search for signs of intelligent life in the universe i mean these were the kinds of it was all around the same time that i was having all of that kind of um you know i was 14 so i was you know going through puberty and everything i mean everything was sort of blossoming in me um and so that yeah i think I've, I've i was very much able to recognize what 
the quality of the work that, that they were doing that I was a part of. Now, during the several years from age eight, when you picked up the phone and called for your audition, till age 14, you're on a Broadway stage. What did your mother think of this all, all this time? Was she supportive? I mean, yeah, she, my mom, she, she was not in showbiz herself. No, she was just, like I said, she was a, a, a single mother nurse. I mean, she was just, she was along for the ride. And, and you know, we were, she was never remotely typical stage mother person thing going on. I mean, mm. she was, she was nothing but supportive and happy and eager to sort of help me do what I needed to do. I mean, looking back again, it, it was, I'm sure it was hard on my brother and sister at times because she was out of town with me sometimes, but, mm. you know, happily as adults, we've been able to talk about that and sort it out. Uh, but you know, she was just, she was, she, she, I think she had made a, a very strong vow to herself, my mom, that she was going to do whatever she could to support all of her kids and doing what we loved. And she did that. I mean, I was the one doing the things that required travel and, mm-hmm. and all that, but you know, she was certainly supportive to my brother and sister as well. Um, and I was the one that was in the public eye to whatever degree I was. I mean, it's certainly not in the public eye, the, the way that I've become since rent, but you know, still on stage in front of thousands of people every night. Well, you mentioned your sister, his name is Anne, and mm-hmm. your brother, Adam, who yes. has become known in his own right as a director, as a playwright, as an author. Yes. What was he doing at this time? He's a couple years older than you, is he? Yeah, Adam grew up as a as an athlete, uh-huh. and, and a, a really great athlete. I mean, he broke records in cross-country and track, and he was a basketball player. He won a basketball scholarship to college, and, I mean, he that was his real passion and pursuit, and... When he went to high school, I think he had to do an extra, like he needed an English credit or extra whatever he needed. And so he decided to, I don't know why, but take a creative writing class. And he started to realize that he had a real love for that. He had hard, literally had maybe read a, a couple of books in his life before that <laughs> point. And then he's become a more avid reader than I am now. And I read pretty avidly. But so he had a major sea change in his life. And he, and he's still a, an athlete, although his body is sort of, barking at him now after all those years of jumping around so it's good that he has this other passion because he can't quite play basketball the way he used to love to do but um so that became a real bridge between us and then we've happily gotten to work together a couple times over the years although i'd I'd love to always work with him more than we get to and i'm just so i'm so thrilled for him that he's had the success he's had and you know i've read his plays for all these years that he's been writing them and it's now almost probably wow um Hmm, almost 20 years that he's been writing plays and now the rest of the world is catching up to him and, and appreciating him and he got nominated for the Pulitzer and all that stuff and and uh, it's just it's been exciting to you know I was there watching it happen and sort of waiting with him like Jonathan mm-hmm. for the moment to come when people would recognize what we all recognized in him well, the one th- good thing about being a writer is you can write at any age. Being an athlete, you tend to, yes. as you get older, become less athletic, yes, I'm yes. afraid. <laughs> uh, six Degrees of Separation, how did you get involved in that? There's there's a little bit of a side story to being involved in Six Degrees of Separation, which is that in 1988, my senior year in high school, I did Landscape of the Body at the Goodman Theater with um, Robert Falls directing and... Uh, it was it was an it's to me that's an amazing play that John Guare wrote and and it was especially thrilling for me as I said that House of Blue, House of Blue Leaves which was John Guare's play had made such an impact on me and which had Stockard Channing in it yes and now here you are in a show with Stockard Channing but in the meantime I had done Landscape of the Body and uh-huh. I met John he came to see our production and he was really really moved by our production and that play was always I think one of his favorite plays and it hadn't ever had quite the life or the or the attention that he felt it deserved and Chicago. Um, critics treated it very kindly and the run went really well and he came out to see it and I actually wound up giving him a ride home. We went out for dinner afterwards with, um, we, sh- we were at the same agency at the time so our 
you know, our agents were in town. We all went out to dinner. And then I wound up giving him a ride home to his hotel room that night. And he was literally moved to tears in the car as he was talking about how much he loved the production. Mm. So I'd had this experience with him that had been meant so much to me because of my previous experience of seeing his play and then being in his play. So when I auditioned for Six Degrees of Separation in April of 1990, I was ex- very excited to get in front of him again in that way and just hopeful that maybe that connection might help. <laughs> and I don't know whether that connection ultimately did help, but I, I know that, I mean, he told me later that he was rooting for me and, you know, and then very happy that Jerry Sachs, the director, gave me the role. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was very exciting to be a part of a new play. I mean, when I read the play the first time, and the play changed very little from what the draft that I read until to what was on stage, it just felt like a, a, an absolute classic immediately to me, and I was thrilled that it had the reception that it had, and you know the 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 closest that the closest correlation I could have to the kind of reception it had was the kind of reception that Rent had. I mean, it was a play, so it wasn't on quite the scale, mm. but but the kinds of reviews that we got and the way the audience responded and the you know the way that it was staged our, the entire cast sat in the front row and we got up from the front row to step on stage to tell the story so i was a part of the audience every night and i could feel that energy every night and wa- and witness Stalker channing's brilliant work night after night and she was the probably the most gifted comedian i've ever witnessed and part of what made her so gifted was that she was always so alive every night mm. that it was there was nothing canned or fixed in her performance. And at the same time, she knew exactly how to do the right little thing that would get the laugh and to extend the laugh, but without milking it, without being a ham. I mean, it was she just had impeccable taste with it. And and of course, she was very moving in the performance. So it was it was it was a real lesson to watch her night after night. You know, as I, as I hear you talk, you've worked with some very good performers, very good actors. Yeah. Certainly in Rent, the people that you work with have gone on to become very well-known theater people. And the other people you're naming, like, you know, the Judith Ivies and Ed Harris's and Stocker Channings of the world. Uh, no, I feel, very, I feel very blessed by all of that. I would think so. Um, you, after Rent went into You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, which had been around for a number of years. It was originally, I think, a record album in 1966, and it became an off-Broadway show. It had a lot of different incarnations. Uh, Why a revival on Broadway of Rent in 1999, and how did you get involved? I was in London doing Rent in in 98, and um, wasn't sure what was going to happen next. I knew that I, you know, certainly happy to do something after rent but i didn't know what it would be and uh i would have also been happy for a little break because i was a little tired mm-hmm. <laughs> after two and a half years you're only in your mid-20s <laughs> yes um but what I, while i was over there i got a, a call from my agent saying that they were doing charlie brown and they wanted me to go on tape so i put myself on tape from london i knew michael mayer from just having met him in new york a couple times we had some mutual friends and stuff and i was certainly an admirer of his work but i didn't I had never worked with him before. And he was already on board as director. Yes, he was directing it. Um, and they and they mentioned that it was... I can't remember when I found this out, but that it was going to be a, a, you know, a new version. It was going to be mm-hmm. sort of made more, I don't know, modernized, but it was going to be updated somehow. And that and it was a show that I had... I think I mentioned earlier that I had played Snoopy when I was seven. So mm-hmm. it was a show that I'd grown up with and that had meant a lot to me. And the idea of doing something that was simpler and sort of softer than rent because rent as fulfilling as it is is also really hard 
in some ways. I mean, uh, night after night, it's it's very demanding. And so it was th- that was that was exciting too. To the thought of doing something that was a little like easy, going to probably be a little easier on my body, a little easier on my voice. And then also, my mom had passed away in the in the during the run of Rent, and there was something very appealing to me about it. Was still a show that was that that had a connection to her because she had witnessed me be in the show when I was seven, even though it was a different role. Mm-hmm. So all of those things made it a kind of feel feel kind of perfect synergy whatever connection fate kind of thing and um so i put myself on tape i had to do the kite song and the paper bag monologue where charlie brown sitting on the on the bench looking at the redheaded girl and afraid to go over to talk to her and sticks a paper bag on his face and so i did that and happily got the part and came back to town and literally five days after i got back i was starting rehearsal so it was like a really major turnaround back into new work um, and it was it was a fantastic rehearsal room. The, the cast was lovely, and, and it was very exciting to get to. We all it was like a workshop. We got to reinvent the show, and it was a very collaborative effort. And uh, when we did an out of town tryout, and I, we toured like four different towns, we got really lovely reviews, even from some tough critics, like in Chicago and Detroit, and and so we thought everything's going really well. And then we came to New York, and and um, Ben Brantley in the New York Times just did not like our show and he he liked Kristen Chenoweth very much deservedly she was fantastic in it but he sort of took a big you know thumbs down to the rest of it and it, we never were able to kind of fight in our footing after that and I mean the producers gave us as much chance as they could they let us run for more months than most producers would have tried to make it work mm-hmm. and uh, it was just sad that we didn't get kind of the chance you know again out of town the, the reception was so much stronger it just it was a little confusing to us and then but then once we announced we were closing the the last week of the run it was like i mean it i'm not exaggerating when i say it was like a rock concert i mean the 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 kind of response that we were getting from the audience was overwhelming and it's just a it was just a sad thing that it didn't have the chance to have that kind of life beyond that i was thrilled for Kristen and for roger that they won tonys they were great in it and they deserved those tonys roger bart is sorry roger bart is snoopy um and it certainly was the thing that launched Kristen Chenoweth's storied and much-deserved career. But um, it would have been nice to have had just a little more chance to keep telling that story. Also, that's a role that was written for her. Sally was yeah. not in the other productions. Exactly. It was created for that and new songs and all yeah. that. Yeah. 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 And you didn't want to uh, audition for Snoopy. You, you wanted to be Charlie Brown. Well, that's the part they asked me <laughs> to audition for, and, and it made sense to me. I mean, But you didn't say I had prior experience with no. Snoopy 20 years earlier. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> and I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do what Roger did with it. Roger is such a, <laughs> a genius comic actor. Mm-hmm. He used to make me laugh like and it's i guess you could say it's unprofessional but it, we thought with that show it was a little more permitted and this this moment where i and during this big song supper time you know where he's he, there's mm-hmm. a point where he was starting to go crazy and i come out and go snoopy what are you doing you know cut that out and he would find whatever way he could to just <laughs> make me have to make him stop and he would in the process just make me almost die laughing and that was a pleasure it must have been rather um, a relief for you now you're in a show that's much lighter in, in tone than, than yeah. Rent so yeah, you, that was you definitely more relief. fun yes that was definitely a relief and and it, you know and, and I I mean Adventures of Babysitting is a comedy and Daisy Confused is a comedy I mean I've had and there's funny stuff in Rent I mean the tango I hope is pretty funny but I also do enjoy doing comic stuff and to find you know the ways to f- make things as funny as I can like I said I, w- I felt like I had this master class watching Stockard night after night so it was it was 
cool to be in that environment. And we could, you know, we really supported each other in that. And, you know, Roger and I would talk about our little moments and we'd ask each other for advice and, mm-hmm. you know, just to, to refine those those details of comedy because you know comedy comedy is hard as they say and and it's it's about being specific and honest and and yet timing is so important and technique is really important you know let's play one of the songs that charlie brown does in in you're a good man charlie brown why don't you pick it and set it up this song is actually a song that i used to sing for auditions sometimes when i was a kid Hmm. and and it did me well back in the day and uh it's always it's i just think it's a great example of what musical theater at its best can do which is reveal character have a good melody and tell a story and um this song you know takes takes a very famous series of incidents in charlie brown's life where he's trying to fly his kite (laughs) and mostly meeting with failure or always meeting with failure um so i just think it just captures all of that really really well and then andrew lippa um took Clark Gesner's original music and kind of expanded it just a little bit and gave it a little more juice in the arrangement. And I just think it's a it's a really nice rendition of it. I mentioned during the introduction that you have your memoir out, and you're only 35 now, so it's a little bit early for a memoir, but <laughs> I think it has has good meaning when you, when you talk about it. It's called Without You, A Memoir of Love, Loss, and the Musical Rent. And it centers in on two important moments in your life, the passing of Jonathan Larson, then subsequently the passing of your own mother. Yeah, and all of that happened while I was in the run of Rent, so um, there was no way I could tell those stories without also telling the story of being a part of the creation of Rent. And I mean, I call it a memoir very specifically because to me memoir is is a kind of a, a period of time rather than a survey of one's life, which is more autobiography. Mm-hmm. But um, I was approached to write it while while I was in the original show, uh, the original run event, um, there was this really lovely coffee table book that the fans of the show know uh, called the Rent Bible. And that publisher, while he was working on that book, we met and we're talking. He's like, Would, "Have you thought about writing something?" He just thought maybe I could. And, and I had written since I was a little kid. I hadn't ever tried to write a book. Mm. And as we were talking um, about what it might be, he was sharing with me his father had died of cancer and I was, had been talking to him about my mom being ill and she was very near the end of her life. And he asked me if I would consider writing about that experience. And I said, yes, without really knowing exactly how I was going to go about doing it. But, um, I started writing some sort of ideas of chapters or sample scenes or, you know, and struggled with it for a little bit to try to, to find the right tone, the right approach and finally kind of cracked it. And then he said, okay, yeah, and I think you can do this, and then gave me a contract. And then I proceeded not to fulfill the contract. It took, it took so, it was so much harder than anything I've ever done. And, it, and, and so many times I would sit down to write, and I would feel like my head was about to fall off because the intensity of what I was writing about was just felt overwhelming to try to capture. And uh, I wound up not fulfilling the contract. I actually had to give my advance back. And then, then my publisher left the company. I mean, there was all this, it seemed like it was never going to happen. And, um, but I kept writing, just thinking I should, I should fulfill this for my own sake. If, even if it never comes out and finished a draft finally years later and called up Rob Weisbach, my publisher, who was now, who had since moved to Simon and Schuster. And I said, I don't know if you're at all interested anymore, but I've finally finished a draft. Can I, can I show it to you? And he said, of course. And then he read it and he's like yes I would love to publish it so it came back around in the, in a really amazing way and and then it just so happened that while I was working on the rewrites and this was in 2004 um, I got cast in the film version 
And then Simon Schuster was, of course, kind of happy about that because it could mm. help them in their efforts to get the book out into the world. But it was all coincidence. And uh, and then it, it the, you know the, then the film came out and then the book came out and the and the kind of response that the book has gotten far. I mean, I can't even tell you how far it exceeded anything I anticipated. I mean, I thought that there would be some people who might be mildly interested and in hopefully it would maybe help some people deal with loss, but the kinds of letters that I've gotten, the kinds of comments that I've gotten from people, the the numbers of people that showed up at my book events when I would do a, a store event and and book signing and reading and has just been unbelievable and uh, really, really gratifying. And it's done everything that I was hoping that it would do in terms of helping people cope with similar situations or simply, you know, share a story that might move them or, you know, it's all of that and more has happened. So it was worth all the years of hard, hard, hard work. Over, over what period of time was it? I mean, how many I mean, years was it? Literally, it was about six years wow. of, of composition. Although, as I say, during that time, I was not composing a lot. I mean, there was, I was working as an actor also during that time, but a lot of time I would, I mean, it it was sort of, it was like a big stewing thing that was happening. It was just, it was sitting there, sitting there, sitting there. And then I would write a few pages and then be away from it for a month and then write a little more. And, you know, and then finally at the end, I don't know how or what I tried so many different things to try to make it happen. And then suddenly at the end, it just happened. It just, those last couple chapters just came out. And, and then I was, you know, very, very fortunate that it, that it was still met with open arms. Well, you've written a book, you write music, you act, you sing, you dance, uh, you have your own rock band. <laughs> is, is, is that a good description? Sure, is, yeah, is, is, sure. is it rock? Is yeah, that, rock and roll, pop stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you're, you're, you're an icon on uh, MySpace. Uh, you're, <laughs> you get so many. I, I just <laughs> took a look at it. Um, and in one day alone, I, I, I made the mistake of hitting the, the print button. It must have been 20 pages spewed out of, of people who commented to you uh, yeah. on just one day. I saw your performance in Rent yesterday. Yeah. It goes on and on and on. Yeah, yeah. You're like a, an icon, a, a pop, pop idol. <laughs> sure, I guess so. <laughs> what do you want to do next? Um, I'm in talks with producers about developing what I'm starting to think of as kind of a rock and roll cabaret evening of telling some of the stories from my book and singing songs um, with my band. Uh-huh. And, and it, it, so the question is like how theatrical it will be or not or how uh-huh. loose. These are some of the questions I'm asking myself and trying to figure out. But um, I'm excited by the by the possibility. I've been doing, as I think I said, I've been doing a lot of lecturing at colleges, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. very fulfilling. But as the more I'm doing it, the more I'm missing also performing. Mm-hmm. So the, the – uh, and I've done a couple little things like I was asked to do uh, – a kind of a VH1 unplugged event at at Sundance last year, and it was just my friend who plays acoustic guitar and myself, and it was sort of telling stories and singing songs like mm-hmm. that, and and it it was very it, it was a nice blend of the two worlds to me, and so I'm seeing how we can make that happen, um, and and there, apparently there's places around the country that are interested in having me come out and do that, and that would be nice, you know. You've also done some teaching at the camp that you attended. Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of teaching over the years. A lot of times when I go to these colleges to do lectures, we always invite them to make available the theater students for me to spend an afternoon with them if if they want, and I either just to talk to them more about the business or, mm-hmm. or to do master class work with them. So it's something that I really do love to do. And I've also directed some, and I just got back from South Africa where I directed the the 
African premiere of Rent, which was something that I'd wanted to do for a very long time. Not necessarily the African premiere, but direct Rent, mm-hmm. and uh, that was very exciting. With a, I, I had a great cast. In, in, in particular, my Roger, I'm convinced, could be on Broadway right now. So I'm hopefully going to try to make that happen for him because he's extraordinary. Do you see yourself back on Broadway? I would love to be back on Broadway. Right. I mean, that's part of the, what was so appealing about getting to do Rent again. I mean, uh, there's there's nothing more pleasurable as an actor to me than living in New York and working on stage in New York. And that combination, and especially in a show that is like Rent, that means so much to me and that has the kind of reception that it has. It's, you know, to have my day spent that way is, uh, as as Jonathan says in his beautiful song, Why, from his show Tick, Tick, Boom, the refrain of that song is, hey, what a way to spend a day. And I certainly agree with that. Well, Anthony, I hope we will see you back on Broadway after this run of Rent, back in another show. Thank you. Maybe even so. Rent, because it'll be running forever. So <laughs> we'll see. Maybe, maybe in another 10 years. We'll see we'll see how my knees hold up. <laughs> thank you. Anthony Rapp, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. My pleasure. Thank you. And on behalf of Howard Sherman, who will be back next week, and Howard always reminds listeners that all of these broadcasts of Downstage Center can be found on the American Theatre Wing's website, americantheaterwing.org. I am John Von Susten for XM28 on Broadway and for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.